This is a Stimulus Network podcast. The Cosmic Shed. Hello and welcome to The Cosmic Shed. I'm Andrew and today's episode is all about My Octopus Teacher, the wonderful documentary on Netflix. We have an interview with Pippa Ehrlich, producer and director of My Octopus Teacher. And if you haven't seen the film, don't worry, there are no real spoilers in this episode. But I recommend that you do find a way of watching My Octopus Teacher if you possibly can. It stars Craig Foster. A lot of people say an octopus is like an alien. But the strange thing is, as you get closer to them, you realise that you're very similar in a lot of ways. It's a hard thing to explain, but sometimes you just get a feeling and you know there's something to this creature that's very unusual. There's something to learn here. I had to have a radical change in my life. And the only way I knew to do it was to be in this ocean with her. And then I had this crazy idea. What happens if I just went every day? You might know Craig Foster or even the local octopus population from the Blue Planet 2 series. And don't forget, we do have an episode of The Cosmic Shed talking to some of the producers of that wonderful series as well back in the archive. But let's not delay any further. Here's director-producer of My Octopus Teacher, Pippa Ehrlich. The film is kind of a, a small story that tells a much bigger story, I think. At its simplest level, it's, it's, it's very much a love story between a man who forms a very unexpected bond with a wild octopus as part of his journey to kind of return to his, his passion and his sense of purpose. And on a bigger scale, I think it's an exploration of our relationship with the natural world as human beings. It's come at an interesting time during some form of lockdown wherever you are in the world, right? And during that time, we've, there's been, for a lot of us, more of an, a connection with nature. And I'm sure this is something that's been coming back to you, but everybody that I've spoken to about this film, because I think, I think everybody who's seen this, it's one of these films that you just can't watch and keep it to yourself, right? I mean, in, ordinarily, we'd be going to, we'd go into the pub and talking to people about it. <laughs> it's just WhatsApp's just been, you know... <laughs> A fire with people saying, have you seen My Octopus Teacher yet? Have you seen it yet? It's amazing. And everybody talking about how much it means to them personally, emotionally, you know, how his connection with nature speaks to them and their own connection with nature. And it's just a really beautiful, beautiful thing. When you were making it, how how aware of how important this was going to be were you? I mean, it was very important to me, so... I held that like deep in my heart the whole way through and that 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 is what drove me because making a film is not easy um, and making a film with no budget in someone's attic when you have no idea whether it's it, it's going to be picked up by anyone or not uh, there are many points in that process where you really have a good hard question about what you're doing but what you just said which is you know by the time I started making the film, I'd been diving every day for six months, maybe a bit longer. 
And throughout the process of making the film, we were going in the water every day. And that's kind of what keeps you going, is that, that deep passion and the excitement about the experiences that you're having there every day. Um, and the sense of awe that you come across on an almost daily basis. Um, and, and a sense of how it's important to share that because we are at a time in our history as a species where if we don't change the way we relate to the natural world, if we don't start thinking about it as something other than a thing that provides resources for us, you know, we're not gonna be around that much longer. Um, so yeah, I, I, was, I didn't know that it was gonna land the way that it has. Mm. I did not expect it to resonate. I had no idea. And, and I think it wouldn't have if it hadn't been for, you know, this other terrible human tragedy that we faced over the last year. Yeah, I wonder whether it would as well. I, I, I think it probably would because it does, it tells a story about nature in a, in a completely different way to the way that I've seen anything like this before. And I think that would have separated it out. But I think coming at the time that it does, it's maybe just that bit more important for people than it would have been. Um, I think the only thing we can do is travel to another universe, right, and release it without a global pandemic, and then we'd know the answer to that question. But we yeah, a parallel universe, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's the clear answer to that. Um, so, I, yeah. it, just to go back a bit, then, if you're you're making this film, because probably a lot of people don't realise that you made this film without a budget in someone's attic, as you say. So, what? Talk me through the filmmaking process. Then, how does this? How does this come from? your mind, Craig's mind, wherever it comes from, combination of the two, others, to being this thing that's had this impact, you know. So, I mean, it's a long story. And we actually, when we speak about the film, we speak about it, it being made by a hive mind. And one of the elements in that hive is the octopus and another element is the sea forest itself. And then this incredible team of filmmakers from all over the world who came on board the project in different phases. So. I got involved um, in early 2017. At that point, I'd started diving um, because I was working for a marine science organization, um, doing a lot of their in-house media, making short films for them, and doing a lot of science journalism. And I had had a sort of crisis of purpose, um, which had been triggered by a whole lot of things in my personal life. But I'd reached this point. I'd just come back, actually, from a almost three month trip to the Bahamas and Cuba and Florida. And I'd seen all these amazing animals and met these amazing people. But through having experiences like that, I'd realized that all of these people were having, you know, had deep relationships with the animals and the places that they worked in. And I was just sort of parachuting in and out and telling their stories in a sort of very vicarious way. And I had the sense that I wanted to experience something like that and I'd met Craig earlier at about, about a year before and I'd gone diving with him and another friend of mine and I, you know I've been diving in the kelp forest for a very long time I've, I've lived in in and out of Cape Town for a while and that very first dive with him I just realized that there was a whole other level of nature happening that I was completely unaware of um, and I saw animals I'd never seen before. I saw animals doing things that I couldn't believe. 
and we got close to them in a different way and, and small animals i was used to swimming around in that kelp forest after big sharks um obvious things and craig was kind of tuned in on a completely different level anyway so that experience blew my mind i didn't see him again for maybe 18 months and i went back and i said uh you know, I'm interested in what you do and I'd like to be able to do it. So he said, okay, well, the first thing you have to do is um, learn to dive in the cold water. So he took me for one dive and then he said, you know, when you're used to the cold, come back and then I'll teach you some tracking. So it, it takes a while to get used to. At that point, the water was about 12 degrees. I think it was, it was late winter. Um, so it was about three months of just going by myself every day uh, and the cold being this terrifying thing in my mind. Um, not being able to last for more than 20 minutes at a time. Um, and then I had a day where I had this incredible breakthrough where I'd been in the water for 20 minutes and I was about to get out. And a friend of mine who, who I was diving with, who was wearing a wetsuit, called me over and said, look here. And, and there was an octopus sitting at the base of a kelp stipe and it was changing colors and staring at us and reaching out. And by the end of that experience, I wasn't cold anymore. Wow. Um, I'd forgotten about the cold. And, and, and that was just like this big breakthrough. And after that, it wasn't really an issue anymore. I mean, it takes, it, it takes probably two years before it's really not a thing in your mind at all. There were still times after that where I dreaded going in, but I always knew that I'd be fine. Um, and, I, I, you know, it's, it was easy to do an hour in 12 degrees from that point. Really, when I watched the film, I was thinking, "Why isn't he wearing a proper wetsuit? What's going on here? Are you also not wearing? Are you also not wearing a proper wetsuit?" Yeah. So, so there's actually a, a huge community now of divers in Cape Town that don't wear wetsuits. Wow. Okay. Are you part of that community? Yeah. Well. Oh. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's it's become fashionable, <laughs> um, and, and there's a huge community in in the UK as well. Uh, I follow I follow them on Instagram. I think they're called wild swimmers or something uh, but there is something about cold water that just makes you feel amazing and, and wakes your mind up and makes you very very present and that 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 presence and that focus is important for what we do um, it definitely helps you see things better um, and it really helps with the tracking as well because you're able to tune into details there's a certain amount of storytelling that happens in films, right, that is um, not true to life. And there's a certain amount of it that's stretching. But the tracking's all real, right? That's a thing. Oh, the tracking is a huge thing. And, and, and the film really only scratches the, the, the very, very surface of that. Everything that we do is about tracking. Craig was first introduced to this idea of tracking in the Kalahari when he was uh, younger than I am. So he was in his late 20s, early 30s. And he was mesmerized by what those guys could do. And they were literally reading the language of nature through visual signs and more than that, through bird language. So that's, you know, in, in a terrestrial landscape, you do far more tracking with your ears than you do with your eyes because birds are talking to each other all the time. They're telling you where you can find the food that you want to find, and they're warning you about predators. But underwater, it's almost only visual. 
and you can use your body and that's another reason that you take your that, that it's best not to wear a wetsuit because you can feel how many pressure waves you cause that you are creating in the water as you swim if you don't have a wetsuit on and that's important with with bigger bigger animals like sharks and sharks can feel they can feel your heartbeat from a very long way away um, and if you're blundering around and, and splashing on the surface um, and you're trying to sneak up on a aggregation of spotted gully sharks, sharks, for example, which are very, very shy creatures, you've got to approach very carefully and very sneakily. Anyway, so when I met Craig, the octopus had, had, had just died um, and he was trying to make sense of this crazy experience that he'd had. And he was still very much immersed in understanding octopuses. He was completely obsessed uh, through most of the, the, the duration of making the film, actually. So the first thing he taught me to do underwater was track octopuses. So it was, it was six months of, of, of water, of, of adapting to the cold and learning to track underwater and learning quite basic things about the kelp forest environment, which I should have known already. Um, but he said to me, look, I've been, I'm ready to make another film. It's taken me a long time to figure out what it's going to be. But I think this octopus story is the thing. And that was when we started working on the story. So I never met the octopus. So the filming that happened with the octopus, this is one of our uh, listener questions, so I should mention. Tom Adams has asked, um, how did you get the film of him holding the octopus? Was there someone else with him? So sometimes his son went with him. Um, and sometimes, so what happened was once he was starting to get all of this incredible footage and see this incredible behavior, he got really excited about it. And he got hold of Roger, who he's been working with for about 20 years now, I think. Or maybe, maybe 15 years. Anyway, so he got hold of Roger and Roger got really excited as well. And he doesn't like to sit still very much. So when he's not flying around the planet, um, shooting for other big production companies, um, he's often shooting kelp forest with Craig. So they started capturing things together, um, which is kind of what the BBC plan Blue Planet thing was born out of. And a lot of stuff Craig self-filmed as well. A lot of the shots, like when you see him swimming up to the den and the octopus swimming out, yeah. that's he set up a remote camera. He's, he's a master of spending hours and hours, well, not hours and hours every day, but at least an hour every day underwater filming by himself. So Philly Runt, another um, listener, has actually asked, does he actually leave the camera? He's he's a photographer himself, so I think he's worried about leaving the camera, but is he, does he really actually leave the camera on the ocean floor? We, 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 we actually leave our cameras a lot. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we actually do. And often, you know, if there'll be three of us out together then we'll, and we want to capture something you know, inside a shark cave or in an octopus den or um, sometimes, you know, a while ago a shark had died and we wanted to get a time lapse of all the starfishes and everything eating it. So we'll just leave the camera and we'll go off for the rest of our dive and only fetch it on the way back. Really? It depends on the swell, obviously. Yeah. But they're small cameras. They, this is why we use them, because you can do stuff like that. And it's also that environment is so cryptic and so busy and overstimulating. Um, it's unlikely that someone else would ever find it. Yeah. No, I, uh, I appreciate that. I think, just speaking of the swell, actually, I mean, that footage is it's just gorgeous, right? I mean, you, 
beginning of the film and that swell, it just really takes you into the world in such a immersive and wonderful way. But can you tell me then how you get from never meeting the octopus and all the footage, probably not all the footage, already existing? How do you then start making this film? What, what happens? So we started with a script. So our original idea was to have a few interviews, but then for a lot of it to be voice of God narration as well. And we started, you know, Craig sent me the treatment and it was quite a broad outline. So it was like an outline of everything he'd seen, what he'd experienced, but there was a lot of other stuff in there as well. There was more stuff about the Bushmen, other animals that exist in her life, more detail about their lives. And then we just sort of really started going through a massive archive of footage, hundreds of hours of what he'd filmed in that year, but a lot of footage from everything that he'd done before when he'd really first started recording things underwater. And then a lot of archive from earlier parts of his filmmaking career. So it took a long time. It was three months of really just going through rushes and, and putting together some really rough assemblies. And we ended up with a very, very messy, I wouldn't even call it a rough cut. It, it was like, I wouldn't even call it an assembly, in fact. And then we started working in more detail on just the octopus sequences. And then everything just started happening by itself because it was such a compelling story. The footage was so compelling. The octopus is such a compelling little character and, and people who we were showing stuff to were falling in love with her so easily. So that more superfluous stuff, it just kind of dropped away by itself. And there were some things that, that even James and I kind of agonized over losing. Um, and that was many, many cuts down the road later in the process. But I mean, the, the beauty, I think, of the story is it's so simple. Mm. You have really one human character, one animal character, then you have the sharks and you have Tom. Um, and that's why it works. But <laughs> if, if, if we'd seen that in the beginning, it would have been a much simpler film to make. But we started off with something that was much broader and, and way more complex and we had to whittle it down to, to, what, to what the film's become. Yeah. I mean, are there other films in that, in what's been cut away? Oh, so many other, no, so many other films. So many other films, so many other natural history sequences, so many other human characters. Our teams got bigger and bigger and, and all of us have had experiences that have completely changed who we are as people, you know, yeah. at some point along this journey. Okay. I mean, I have to ask you for one of your experiences. <laughs> okay. Kind of... So there, there was a strange phenomenon that happened last year where a whole lot of juvenile humpbacks were coming into very, very shallow water um, and feeding. Uh, so it's maybe a 12, 14 meter whale in three and a half, four meters of, of water. And we just had this day where this little whale came in and we spent, we had three dives of like 20 minutes each where we just swam next to this whale and watched him swimming along the surface and lunging down and grabbing all of these shrimps and coming up and being kind of irritated with us for being there and looking at us out the corner of his eye and moving on. And, and it's really in your backyard. You're not paying a tour operator and going out for miles on a boat. You know, we, 
strolling down the hill and swimming 50, 60 meters off the place where we always change to dive. And there's this incredible animal visiting your shores um, and you're getting to see this, this, this thing that it does. And, and he knows you there. Amazing. Yeah, I, I dreamed about that for, for months afterwards. I can imagine. It just, it just comes alive in your psyche. Yeah, um, and it, and it feels very special because it's your home. I don't I don't know how to explain that. Yeah, no, completely. I can see that. Just on the coast in North Devon, there's a colony of seals just on the rocks nearby, and it's just that there are seals. You know, it's just wonderful. Grey seals. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I went out on my birthday last year. I was a Cornwall, um, and we swam out. And the, I mean, it was like ten degrees. We weren't wearing wetsuits. The air was colder, and it was mud. You couldn't see anything. We, we thought that there were seals, but we couldn't really see. And we got out there and suddenly there were just all these heads going boop, boop, boop. And they were getting closer and closer. And eventually they, everywhere you look, they're just seals and you can't see them underwater. But I could feel them chewing on my fins and, oh. and they're choosing to come and play with you. Yeah, amazing. And it's, yeah, it's oh, amazing. It's, they're just, it's just, it's such an amazing thing, isn't it? Because I'm um, amateur astronomer and I wow. just sort of have spent years gazing up and wondering what might be out there mm. and it's a it's a you know the foot that i also was involved in the blue planet live back in the day and it um you know when they turned it into a, a concert yeah i was involved in in that side of things wow. and um that i think it's the first line of that se series if or close to it you know that we know more about the moon than we don't know about our oceans and since then the stories that have been told about the oceans just make me think, what was I bothering looking at space for? No, but space is pretty cool too. <laughs> oh, it is. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It is, totally. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a competition that's uh, it's a bit like Star Wars or Star Trek, isn't it? I mean, why are we even <laughs> asking the question? Let's just have both. Yeah. Anyway. And, and, and it is the same thing because you are trying to understand something and relate to something that is so different to you, yet there it is staring back at you. Whether it's a planet or an animal. Oh, yeah. Well, okay, but the difference there, of course, is that a planet isn't hasn't got a soul, has or hasn't yeah. got a, a mind, a personality. Whereas the the octopus. I mean, do, this is a question from a listener as well. Does it, did you did the octopus ever have a name for you? At the beginning, we had a name for her, which I'm not going to repeat. Um, but oh, the more we got to know her and the more we cut and the more Craig talked about it and the more we spoke to kind of other people who we really respected, we just realized, you know, there's a lot of, you, you can't really make a film like this without some degree of anthropomorphism. And we wanted to do what we could to, to, to keep that at a minimum. And the minute you, you we, if we'd given her a name, um, it, it would, yeah, it, it would have immediately undermined her, her, her wildness, I suppose, um, her animalness. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, that really works. Wait, so what you, you were talking about you going into the water and filming, is that, did you then go back in when you needed some more footage? Did you go and film some footage to fill in areas where you needed more footage? All we had um, at the end of this year was you know the key all the key things that had happened in the octopus's life 
and it was hundreds of hours of things. And it was often Craig's camera and Roger's camera, which was a dream from an editing point of view. Um, and then we had a few of these little golden snippets of Craig and the octopus. But we didn't have anything of Craig himself just swimming through the kelp forest, looking at things, filming things. So we had to get all of that stuff. And, and I shot a lot of that. Um, Roger also, I mean, Roger came in, I shot for months. Roger came for one day and then kind of got more than I'd got over all those months because that's what you can do when you're yeah. top, top cameraman <laughs> with a red. <laughs> but I was very happy as an editor as well. So, and then we also had to get a lot of stuff of other animals and then we had to get GVs. It's just general visuals, loads and loads of kelp forest. And then we had to get drone shots and we had to get terrestrial shots of Craig. Um, and we had to shoot modern stuff of, of, of Craig and Tom because a lot of the stuff he'd shot was, you know, we had to show we, Tom's, Tom's journey a little bit as well. So there was a lot of extra stuff. Sometimes we needed close-ups. You know, and, and there is there are generic places in the film where we're talking about generic octopus things. And in some of those cases, we did have to get shots that we didn't already have. Because we were walking on the beach in, uh, a couple of weeks ago and we found a very small octopus about this big. Wow. It was on a rock. Because this the tide locally here, I think, is the second highest tide oh, variation yeah, yeah, in the world yeah. or something exactly and it it had been left behind was it a live because we'd yes wow just yeah and uh, because we'd seen the film we kind of felt like we knew what the right thing to do was and we uh, we helped it back into a, a pool and covered it in um seaweed and stuff so it was going to be all right and it, it was just very very you know it was particularly thinking about the octopus when it had its leg um leg arm arm no tentacles though so it had one of its arms taken off by the shark and that this octopus was in a kind of similar state of shock yeah exactly yeah. and um and then when we sort of picked up the rock and stuff to take it it squirted ink out, so we knew it was definitely still alive. And then put it in. It was a lovely. Still fighting. Yeah. Wasn't giving up. Exactly. <laughs> no, that's a great story. <laughs> this is a question from Emma Bristian. So wait, you've got the uh, the sound in the film. How much of that is Foley, and how did you use underwater ca uh, microphones and things? Some of it is underwater microphones and things. Um, we did have Barry Donnelly, our sound engineer, come out, and Craig took him diving. In fact. He has known Craig. That house you see in the beginning being bashed by the waves. Barry used to hang out with Craig's younger brother there when he was three years old. So this 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 film is really made by people who who know this environment well and know each other well. Can I just say though, but why was there a house there? I mean, that's not a good place for a house. <laughs> Because the water smashes against it all the time. It does. It does. So now the houses that are built there have like steel reinforced windows okay and, and and things that like electric things that come up when a storm is coming yeah and and, and those houses are worth an absolute fortune let me tell yeah, you yeah i could imagine yeah. uh it's a very fashionable place to oh, live it's amazing um, yeah yeah no sorry carry on sorry yeah. so, so barry came out he recorded some stuff underwater some stuff actually the, the sound we got off our little cameras was actually very good 
Um, and then he recorded a lot of sounds of Craig swimming and blowing out of his snorkel and blowing bubbles underwater, sounds of him walking along the sand and through the grass. Everything we could do, we did. But obviously, to recreate an underwater world from only underwater sounds is not an easy thing to do because the sounds are fairly unrecognizable underwater, really. And that's that's kind of a choice you can make, is, is how rich do you want your underwater soundscape to be? If we matched it exactly, I think it would have been very different. Um, so, you know, Barry was super creative. He had an amazing Foley artist as well called Charles Mustard. Um, and they did things like collect actual pieces of kelp and kind of bend them and, and creak them together. So there's shots where Craig is swimming through a kelp passage and you can literally hear, it sounds almost like wind in trees, hmm. but it's, it's, it's real pieces of kelp where we warped and, and changed the sound and there's the music. Um, if you look at, for example, the second chase sequence, so Tom, Craig's son, is, is big into music and sound recording. So he recorded, I think, 16 different sounds that he could make with kelp from blowing in it, hitting it, drumming on it, all sorts of things. And Kevin, our composer, then took those sounds and created these incredibly scary soundscapes. That's brilliant. Love that. I, the, the music, I mean, the soundtrack's incredible as well, isn't it? I mean, but there's always a moment in these processes where um, somebody else creates something because of what you're working on that wouldn't have existed yeah. if you weren't working on it. And you're like... This is awesome. Yeah. It's, <laughs> mostly just saying, thank God it works. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. You have uh, you often like you get to a point where something really works and you can feel it and it's just right and it's not yeah. often that you get to that point especially and it's normally in the edit where you're just like okay this whole everything is now speaking everything is cohesive and and resonating and and we were very conscious of does this represent what we feel when we're there that was that was a question we were asking ourselves the whole time and when you find that moment um, in your in your assembly in your cut, then often you kind of work backwards from there. And you you know when you've got your 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 tone, and then you find other places in the film where you can filter backwards. Um, mm. And certainly, like we had an incredible. So we went to Kevin. The, the score is very interesting. We went to Kevin right at the beginning of the process because he'd made a lot of films for Craig. Um, he is the so him and I are exactly the same exactly the same age. He created a few songs and he worked with a partner whose name was Matthew Dennis, um, and they gave us like five or six tracks. Then we had no money for two years. We had absolutely zero funds. We didn't know if we were ever going to sell the film. Um, we got rejected a few times. Our EP was panicking, um, and. At that point, James Reed came on board, which was amazing because the problem we had is that the voiceover wasn't working. That, that approach was just not pulling people into the story in the way that we needed it to. Um, so he came out to South Africa, did this incredible interview with Craig. Uh, for three days, he sat there and questioned him 
with a degree of kind of focus um, and ruthlessness in some <laughs> in some cases. Um, and I, I was shooting second camera and I just remember feeling so relieved because I could see it was going to work. Um, and I tried to do a couple of interviews with Craig, but you cannot interview someone who, number one, knows you very well, and number two, knows that you already know the story. It just doesn't work. You, cannot, you can't force it. Um, so he, told, he sat down with James and he told James the story for the very first time, and that's how it comes across. And it was incredible to watch. Yep, and then much later we went back to Kevin and he had to work. We had this incredible temporary track with, you know, songs that we'd pulled out of Interstellar and The Dark Knight and Hans Zimmer tracks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You show up, so then you show up at, at your composer's door and you say, well, we want it to sound like this, just match this, but obviously don't copy anything. Yes. Um, and he had to work so hard. And I mean, he, he and I already, we went through, we, we went on a journey together because we were both, you know, this was, this was my first big project and now I was making it for Netflix. Yeah. Amazing. Um, and that's, that's a lot of pressure. Yeah. That's, I can't really express the amount of pressure that that is. Mm. Um, and he felt the same. He'd never delivered to a broadcaster like that. Um, and he got pushed and pushed and pushed. And sometimes we made him rewrite the same track four times. And the deadline got pushed out. But in the end, you know, he completely knocked it out the park. Yeah, he did. And he's now released the soundtrack and, and everybody loves it. But yeah, yo, there were moments. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we were, yeah. Okay, fair enough. But, I, but you know it's out of the park as well, because, I mean, I, I, it's it's incredible. I, it really is a, a, a deeply wonderful film. Tell me about <laughs> making it for Netflix then. What what happens there? What's that process? Do you email someone at Netflix and say, I, I've got this idea, can I make it for you? Uh, I'm not sure that would work. So <laughs> we had a really good... <laughs> We worked um, right very early in the process, about six months into the edit, we got off the fence on board mm. and they've got a brilliant sales team and Ellen Windermuth came on board as our EP um, and they just started shopping it around. But I think certainly with a film like this, which is coming from, you know, Craig hasn't made a, hadn't made a film in 10 years, I'd never made a film. The film was about, it wasn't about a dolphin or a killer whale or a great white shark or a panda bear or a leopard. It was about an octopus, which was always going to be a hard sell. So just getting someone to watch the rough cut was not easy. Yeah. And I think everything in, in the end, you know, once we had our next draft ready, and a, a lot of credit goes to, to James Reed for getting that cut to where it was. And James is... You know, he's already an incredibly established filmmaker. He's won big awards before. Um, and that helps. If, you, if you're trying to sell your film and you have someone attached to it like James, people know, take, take notice. Um, but honestly, the timing was just perfect. Our sales guy, uh, our EP at Netflix, Sarah Edelson, had literally just joined Netflix, like a month or two before, maybe not even that long. She was flying back from Hawaii. Ludo Defoe, our sales guy, 
sent the film to her the night before she got on the plane. She pushed play while she was sitting on the plane and her eight-year-old child was sitting next to her. And the whole flight home, he was just like clawing his way onto her lap. Like he just wanted to know what was going on on her screen. Um, and that's a very rare thing, I think, for Netflix to find as a film where children and adults are both massively engaged. And working with them, I have to say, yeah, they're, they are incredible to work with. They give you incredible support and incredible creative freedom. Um, they have incredibly high expectations. Yeah. Uh, everything has to be polished, like polished. I really have learned about polishing a rough cut now. Really? And, and not sending it until you can't find a single thing wrong. So what happened at that point is came back to South Africa, Netflix came on board, Sarah actually came out to South Africa, which was amazing for us. Um, we did a few pickup interviews because there were a, f a few bits of the story that, that Netflix felt were important and we hadn't properly explored. And then we went into our next cut and at that point, they brought on Jinx Godfrey. And that's the amazing thing about working with Netflix. If you want Jinx Godfrey, who has edited Chernobyl and Man on Wire and The Theory of Everything, she's like a top feature film Academy Award winning editor. Um, and she was like, sure, I'll, I'll be your edit consultant. <laughs> um, yeah. And working with someone like that is, I mean, I was literally sitting on the phone because you know, it's not easy to direct and edit. I would, I would only recommend that for very, very brave people who like a lot of stress. Yeah. I won't do it again. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I won't do it again because it's it's hard to see you, you you're so deeply inside your project. Then it it becomes very difficult to make choices. Um. Anyway, but Jinx came on board and she was really helpful in getting the cut right. And she could sit and listen to something and she would say to me, okay, so at 20 minutes, 15 seconds and 32 frames, you need to shave six frames off the sound effect. And she could hear that. Wow. That's the level of, and, and yeah, I, I mean, working with someone like that is just yeah. that kind of experience. Okay, but you can't, when you say you got to polish it before you send it off, but Netflix wouldn't expect you or another filmmaker to be able to be at that level when they're sending it off. But you send them the first cut and they, 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 then you're working on the film together. Now it becomes a, a Netflix original. Oh, uh, okay. The next cut you send, yeah, it, it's, it, it, yeah. Right, okay, wow. That's kind of <laughs> it's kind of me. <laughs> no, it was it, it was even yeah we were all. <laughs> but it, I mean, yeah, I've learned I've learned so much, um, and I've worked with amazing people. The public response is great, is wonderful. I assume you're hearing all that, and the um, critical response is wonderful, and you're winning awards. I mean, it's worth it, right? No, it's worth it. No, I mean, and I think every film is like that. I think if you don't have periods of, of stress and despair, yeah. um, I just can't, I can't really imagine. <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine a film without, without a bit of that. But also, I mean, three years is a long time to be working on one project. You're going to have ups and downs. And For sure. 
but yeah, it's an enormous, enormous privilege to be able to work with a story like this, work with a character like Craig, spend that much time underwater and outside and just, you know, mm. getting to know and, and falling in love with an environment. I really, at the same time that you see Craig falling in love with the octopus, I, behind the scenes, was just falling absolutely in love with the sea forest. Um, and then to work with, with these incredibly experienced filmmakers. Yeah. Yeah. Life-changing. The, pa the passion is there to be seen, and it just translates through the screen to everybody sitting at home. Uh, it's a wonderful thing. Are you then, are you, do you now go, okay, right, then what's next? What's the next film? I'm a filmmaker, absolutely, and I want to stay in the realm of filmmaking, but I'm part of this collective of people called the Sea Change Project, which is an NGO. Um, and we are all about protecting the great African sea forest and telling stories about the connection between people and nature. And what happened after the film came out, which is, you know, we, we didn't really set out to make an impact film. And this is the thing that has excited me more than any awards or is, we, we, we told a conservation story in a very subliminal way. And it just worked. And we just keep winning impact awards and all these film festivals and we're getting thousands. The morning we woke up after the film went out, we were receiving an email every three seconds. Really? Yeah. Yeah, and that went <laughs> on for weeks. We couldn't keep up. Yeah. I mean, our whole team is absolutely exhausted and shell-shocked yeah um, but also really excited because all sorts of doors are open to us now um, from a conservation point of view from a storytelling point of view so many people are on our side so I think we really can do things now to make sure that this environment is protected and I think the whole world's on our side so that's really exciting Thank you so much to Pippa for joining me for this episode of The Cosmic Shed. And I hope you've all enjoyed listening to the backstory behind this wonderful, wonderful film. I don't know about you, but I'm off to watch it again. And we'll be back soon with an episode on, I think we're going to do The Mandalorian and Discovery together. And we're going to be talking to friend of the shed, Seth Shostak of SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And thank you very much for listening. The Cosmic Shed. Science fact. Science fiction. And everything in between. This podcast is brought to you by The Stimulus Network.